Hebrews chapter 10, perhaps we might point out the verse 10, the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The once for all sacrifice is our subject tonight. In this chapter 10 of Hebrews, the key words are the nouns sacrifice and offering. And also the verbs to sacrifice or to offer. I won't point out all the occurrences of those verbs and nouns. You can study that yourself. You can underline them. You can highlight them. And you will discover that there is no other chapter in the New Testament where these words come together with such frequency. This is the chapter, the supreme chapter in the New Testament scriptures that tell us of the one sufficient sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The apostle starts the chapter off referring to the old covenant sacrifices and offerings. In verse 1, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of those things, can never with those sacrifices, which they offered year by year continually, make the comers thereunto perfect. So he starts by showing to us that the sacrifices of the old cannot save. There have been those people who have taught that that's how people were saved in the Old Testament. That somehow God accepted these sacrifices and offerings as truly dealing with sin. The people were, it is taught, approved of God and justified on the basis of them if they offered them up sincerely. But that's not the case. And Paul states that beyond the realm of any doubt. Those offerings and those sacrifices never made anybody accepted with God. They never made anyone perfect. They didn't deal with sin. They are shadows. It's not the word that he uses. The law having a shadow of good things to come. Now, now notice, he doesn't say the law is a shadow. The law is no such thing. The law is solid and substantial and real and it reflects the holiness and the righteousness and the justice of God. The law is not a shadow. Otherwise we wouldn't write it on our wall the way you see the Ten Commandments on our wall. But the law has a shadow in relation to it in the Old Covenant. And that shadow is to do with the ceremonial. And especially with the sacrifices and the offerings and all that went on in the tabernacle under the Old. Yes, there was the law, the moral law, but then there was all this ceremonial aspect of it that were the shadows. And that's what the apostle means. And at the heart of these shadows are these sacrifices and offerings. Now, a shadow is good, 
but it is not substantial. A shadow shows us something of something that is substantial and true and real. Whenever you see the shadow of a rock, the shadow is really nothing. It's just connected with the rock. It has a relationship with the rock, but the shadow is not the rock. It's the rock that is the true and the real. And these offerings and these sacrifices, they are the shadows, the many shadows of the one rock, the one sacrifice, the one offering. So there is a connection. They are shadows of Christ's one true sacrifice. And the connection, as real and true as it is, is not a saving connection. The shadows don't save. Paul says, even though they were offered often, very often offered, they offered continually, year by year, they could never justify a sinner. The comers to God were never made perfect by them. It's not what that says there in verse 1. Continually, and yet the comers thereunto were not made perfect. They never satisfied the conscience. They couldn't. Verse 2. For then they would, not have, would they not have ceased to be offered? I mean, once an offering satisfied the conscience, you wouldn't need another one, but they had to be offered again because they didn't purge sin. They didn't deal with the conscience. And then he says in verse 4, it's impossible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. So do you see the words he uses? Can never make perfect. Impossible to take away sin. Those shadows didn't do any of that. But they were shadows of something that did when the fullness of time came. And that's the one offering of Jesus Christ. And the reason why these shadows couldn't do anything is, well, among other reasons, one is it's just the blood of animals. It's just the blood of beasts. That's all. What does a beast cost? There's not really any value in a beast that could deal with the lake of sin and satisfy the justice of God and take away the stain and the guilt. So even though they were commanded under the old covenant, and even though they were necessary as part of the worship of God under the old, they never give God pleasure. They never were, as it were, satisfying to his holiness and justice. And so it was not possible that those sacrifices should delight him. What does verse 6 say? In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hadst no pleasure. Verse 8, sacrifice and offering and burnt offering and offering for sin, thou wouldst not, neither hadst pleasure therein which are offered by the law. They were commanded, they were necessary, but they didn't give the Lord pleasure, they didn't give the Lord delight, they didn't do what the one-for-all offering was to do in giving to the Father such delight and such pleasure. It was that that gave him the delight and the pleasure. Not the shadows. So these offerings did not bring him the glory. And they could not satisfy him. 
And so every priest he has to stand daily ministering and often, often times the same sacrifices, verse 11, which can never take away sins. Never. Do you see how he's always emphasizing this? How he's always stressing this? Impossible. They could never make perfect. They could never take away sin. What more does the apostle have to say? Nobody ever was saved by the blood of an animal. No sin was ever removed by, by the blood of a beast. So no matter how many offerings, no matter how valuable the offerings, no matter how often they were offered, they could never take away sin. You ask then, well, why does God institute them? Why does God command them for hundreds of years? Why does the blood flow again and again and again from the tabernacle worship and from the temple worship? Whenever they built the temple, they had to put in the drainage system and much of the drainage system was to take away this blood that endlessly was flowing. Why did God institute all of that? And the answer is, as shadow to substance. To show people before Christ came the answer in the sacrifice of him who is to come in Christ's sacrifice so there were purposes in the shadows in their connection with the reality because they had to wait for the reality and they needed something to give them understanding in the gospel before the reality because it wasn't for thousands of years and they had to have faith and believe so they needed, they needed something. And they had the shadows, the ceremonies of the law of the old covenant. Those sacrifices really do several things in the old covenant. Now one of the things that they do is they show how serious sin is. It's God's way of showing how horrid sin is. How awful how serious it is. So the nature of sacrifice, substitutionary death, innocence, dying for sinners, all of that shows the gravity of sin. Whenever you think of the number of the sacrifices, whenever you think of the, the often flowing blood, whenever you think of the fear and the terror of the beasts, all of this horridness. It taught the people of God the seriousness of sin. The seriousness of disobedience to God. The sadness and all of that that was latent in the shadow ceremony system. It painted how horrible sin is to God and how horrible it is to us. I mean, it's horrible to see a beast slaughtered and butchered and to smell the flesh burning continually. God wants to teach us the horridness of sin and what it is to him. That shows then the holiness of God, doesn't it? The fearful justice of God against sin. The wages of sin is death. Why? Because of the terrible justice of God, his righteousness, his holiness, 
mean, the whole tabernacle system was set up to show that God beyond the veil is holy, dwells in holiness, the laws in the ark, the justice of God, the very glory up between the cherubim. He's a consuming fire, and none can approach unto him without blood, without death, without justice, without sacrifice. And so it shows the holiness of God. It taught the people that. And that's why the law being preached and proclaimed is a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ because it shows the hardness of sin and the holiness of the God that we have sinned against. But then they also show something of how remission of sins are obtained. As the apostle says, without the shedding of blood is no remission. They certainly learned that lesson. No forgiveness without blood atonement. No forgiveness without substitution. No forgiveness without an innocent dying in the stead of the guilty. And the thought of God knew that the base wasn't really that. But somehow the seed of the woman and one to come somehow would be. They didn't see all of the cross and all that we understand about it. Because it's impossible that they could see it. It was yet future. It's history to us now. We see it so clearly. But they had only the shadow to look at. And with the teaching through the shadows, they, they realize that there must be one to come who may make the great atonement. So it, it showed them something of the reality. It pointed to Christ. That's what the shadow did. So they're pointing to the one great sacrifice. Because God only intended one great sacrifice for sin forever. There's only one atonement. There's only one rock. There's only one substance from which are coming all the shadows, but there's only one, only one offering, only once, one for all offering to be offered in the fullness of time. Only one cross, only one Calvary, one blood of the Lamb. Christ is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the earth, you see. He's the substance, he's the reality. He's always the rock, but he wasn't truly slain until thousands of years later, when the fullness of time was come. But he only ever was the once for all offering in the decree of God. And the shadows are pointing to him. Don't we always say that? That's pointing to Christ. That's a type of Christ. That's portraying to us something of, of the Saviour and his work. So the old covenant sacrifices are the shadows and, of course, Shadows of Christ who is to come. And the shadows cease and they flee away when the substance arrives and the full light of the gospel comes, all the shadows go away. So, so we don't keep the shadows anymore. We don't keep the ceremonies. That's all abolished. Now the law of the Ten Commandments isn't abolished because that's never a shadow. Uh, that's always a reflection of the, the true holiness of God, his standard in the very ark itself. That law was in Christ's heart. 
That's not a shadow. He come to keep that law. And his people are to keep that law too. So the law is not abolished in its moral aspects, only in its ceremonial. And that includes the keeping of the Sabbath day too. So we have no more blood rituals. We have not even circumcision, nothing like that. Nothing to do with the shedding of blood anymore. We only have the baptism and we only have a covenant meal under the new because all of that blood pouring is abolished and gone. And as proof of this, that the old with its sacrifices are gone and the new with all its once for all offering has come, Paul gives us two Old Testament passages as proof. He quotes Psalm 40 in verses 5 to 14. That psalm that we sung, and that's why we sung it, because Paul is quoting from it. And then he quotes again, yet again, Jeremiah 31, verses 15 through to 18. And he's using both of these scriptures to show that the offerings and the sacrifices are shadows that are past when the once-for-all offering of Christ comes and brings in the new. Paul's always bringing us to the scriptures, isn't he? He always gives chapter and verse. He's saying this was told foretold in the old. The prophets knew this. The psalmists knew this. If they searched and understood their scriptures, they knew that when Christ came and brought in the new, that all this old would depart and go. And Psalm 40 and Jeremiah 31, as I said, are the portions that he quotes. So the end of the old, the establishment of the new, in the blood of Jesus Christ, is even set forth in the Old Testament. It's not an invention. God predicted it in the old, and the psalmists and the prophets knew this. It is clear from Psalm 40 that it is not the many sacrifices of the old, but the one and only offering of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Verse 5 there, quoting Psalm 40, When he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not. It's not the old, it's not the sacrifices, it's not the offerings of the temple. Thou wouldst not, they don't give the pleasure. But a body, have you prepared me? This is to be the offering, this body, this body of Jesus Christ. This is what the volume of the book is always setting forth. A body hast thou prepared me. I come to do thy will, O God. And by the which will of Jesus Christ, this holy, obedient will of Christ, by the which will we are sanctified, as that will gives up the offering of his body and blood unto God and the sacrifice of the cross. It's all set forth in Psalm 40. That, that's what God is waiting for. That is what God is sending. He's sending his Christ. He's sending one who will be the very embodiment of doing all the will of God and giving his whole life a sacrifice unto God all his days and finally in the offering of the oblation of the cross. The once for all. That's what God intends. That's what God wants. 
And that's what God completes in his son Jesus Christ. And Psalm 40 is that. Christ comes speaking those words and doing all of that. And then in Jeremiah 31, it's not the tabernacle or the temple offerings that bring in the new. It's not the old covenant offerings. It was the new covenant that brought in the forgiveness of sins. It was the new covenant that gave the dispensation of the Holy Spirit. It was the new covenant that gave the true dealing with sin. It was the new that came only with the offering of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. It's not the old covenant that does that. The death comes, saith God, and make a new covenant. That's what will do it. And Jesus Christ, on the very eve of his oblation, he said, this is the blood of the new covenant, shed for you for the real and the true reality of the forgiveness of sins. He's referring to Jeremiah 31, and Paul is quite right to quote it. So with these scriptures... He is assuring us that the the ceremonies and the offerings of the old are temporary. They don't bring in the real and the true. They're only shadows of that which is to come. And it's Christ who brings in the new covenant. Paul then is telling us about Christ's sacrifice and how it differed from the old sacrifices and offerings. He's told us they're shadows that never take away sin. But now he goes on to tell us of the sacrifice of Christ. How that is different. How is Christ's sacrifice different from the old? How is his death better than all the deaths of the beasts and the animals that took place under the old? Well, first of all, as I said, his sacrifice is substance. It's reality. It's the rock. They are just shadows. I don't have to repeat all of that. A shadow cannot take away the sin. It's the substance and the reality that does that in Christ. His offering is is the substance, the true. And then secondly, Christ's sacrifice was once. Only once. Those sacrifices were often, they were continual. What does it say there in verse 10? The offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all but the old was continual verse 1 sacrifices plural always plural Christ is never plural Christ is ever only singular one sacrifice but those sacrifices year by year continually offered they're continual they're ongoing they never cease until Christ finally says it's finished and the veil is rent in two Verse 11, every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices. Oftentimes. He repeats it again and again. All those shadows are continual. And they have to be continual because the people of God need to continually preach to. They need to be continually reminded of the once for all offering as we need to be continually reminded by the word of God. And by the preaching of the ceremonies. Although we don't practice the ceremonies. But this man, verse 12, after he had offered one sacrifice. Do you see how the emphasis is always on this? One 
One sacrifice, once for all offering. So Christ is different in that it is solitary. Verse 14, by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. You see how the play is here? Continual, but they never could make them perfect. But one offering forever perfected them that are sanctified. It's once. And it was completed at the cross. And we must never think that he's continually offering himself in heaven and that the, the sacrifice is perpetual up there. No, it's a once for all offering and it's finished. And it was finished on the earth. And it had to be done so for him to go into the holiest for us. And then thirdly, Christ's sacrifice truly dealt with sin. The offerings and sacrifices did not, could never take away sin, could never deal with the conscience, could never purge the conscience, but the blood of Christ does. It purges sin, it deals with sin. Verse 11, every priest standeth daily ministering, sacrifices the same which can never take away sins. And in chapter 9, verse 26, it says, for then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And so we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. It brings a true cleansing, a true purification, a true making righteous before God. And that's why the new covenant says their sins and iniquities I will remember no more because the purging blood has been shed. Or where this is, there's no more offering for sin. Verse 17. And then, fourthly, when Christ offered his sacrifice, he sat down in the heavens. Doesn't Paul say this? He went in and sat down. The Old Testament priest could never do that. But he did. The once for all offering, the veil rent, and he went in and he sat down. That's amazing. The only priest who ever sat down. And he sat down on the throne of grace because that's the only seat. He sat down at the right hand of God. No offerings and Old Testament sacrifices ever led to that. None of the shadows ever led to that. It would be unthinkable that the priest would sit down. I mean, if the priest had to sat down even on the Day of Atonement when he went in before the ark, if he dared have done that, he would have died. And they had to pull him out with the rope that they tied around his waist. But Christ sat down. Because his once-for-all offering was sufficient. What does verse 11 say? Every priest standeth Daily, ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices. You see, they're standing, always standing. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down. And it was no mean and lowly place that he sat down in either. As the apostle is always reminding us, he sat down on the right hand of God. He's in the presence of God appearing. This, of course, proves that the offering does not need repeated. And he doesn't go, have to go back again to repeat 
And he doesn't have to make an oblation in the presence of God, continually making some kind of offering. No, he sat down on the grounds of the once-for-all offering. The work is finished. The offering is accepted once for all. And then, fifthly, the offerings of the Old Testament could never reach inwardly into the human heart. They never had an effect on the conscience. They never did. They never affected anybody internally. Only outwardly, ceremonially and ritually. They only dealt with outward purity, external. For example, if you touch the leper, you had to make an offering so that you could be clean. It only dealt with the external. If you had a, an issue of blood or touched blood or something like that, it was external impurity and you had to have an offering. It only ever dealt with that. None of the Jews ever, never, always realized that never really deals with the conscience. That doesn't deal with sins in the heart. None of it did deal with sins in the heart. None of it purged the conscience. It never could because it's just animals and beasts. They didn't bring the sinner into God's presence. The veil still remained. And they were still shut up outside. There was no boldness to enter in. It was still the same way of approach through a high priest who only could go in once a year. So it didn't give boldness. It didn't give the liberty. It didn't give the freedom of conscience such as believers have under the new. Christ's blood has moral power to go into a man's heart and conscience. Just as it has power to go beyond the veil into the holy presence of God, so it can satisfy the conscience. Oh, what a wonderful offering of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. What a saviour, what a salvation. It takes away sin. It leaves the conscience cleansed from the dead works that bring us into bondage and into deadness and into hopelessness and into despair. It deals with the conscience so that we can serve the living God with liberty and gladness of heart. Even though we're sinners because we have been redeemed by blood. And then sickly, Christ's sacrifice was of himself, not of others, not of beasts, not carrying someone else's blood or some other beast or some other living thing. But no, he only gives himself. He only sacrifices himself. He doesn't slaughter the creation. He doesn't slaughter the beasts of the field and bring their blood in. No, he just offers himself wholly unto God in that sweet-smelling savour of the giving of himself in the mystery of the cross of Calvary. That brought God the Father such delight. And so when he came into the world, sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not, my Father, but a body have you prepared me, and I delight to do your will, and I delight to keep your law, and I do your will, and I sacrifice my whole humanity unto thee on the behalf of my people.
That's the sacrifice. That's the power of the blood. You know, it's not just about obtaining the blood. Some people think if you just obtain the blood, if the blood is just shed, that somehow that's all it. No, it's far more. It's about how the blood is shed. It's about how the offering is made. It's about the sinlessness and the righteousness and the wonder of that sacrifice of that man. That's the power of the blood. By which will? That's the power. It's that holy will by which will we are sanctified by the offering of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And so Christ's sacrifice also was voluntary. It was willing. I come to do thy will. I delight to do thy will. There's no going back. There's no running away. It's a perfect obedience. The animals are forced. And you can smell the fear and the dread and the desire to run away. They had to be driven to the slaughter. But not Christ. He gives himself. God wants a perfect sacrifice of full obedience all life long and especially in death. That's what God wants. And he only ever got that in his son Jesus Christ. Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And so this is what makes the sacrifice perfect and powerful. And this is why there is power in Jesus' blood. Lastly, the sacrifice of Christ gives us blessings and liberties that none of the Old Testament sacrifices could ever give. All those offerings and not even the veil not even the veil opened. All of those offerings and they couldn't even come into the holy place where only the priests could go outside the veil. They could never get even beyond that. All of that offering, all of that bloodshedding. And still the way closed. I mean, if that's not a lesson to the people of God under the old, I mean, they must have been totally blind. This isn't the true way. It's pointing it out for us. But when Christ died, the veil of the temple rent in two from the top to the bottom, and the way into the holiest was manifested. At the very point of dying, at the very point of death, not days later, not weeks later, at the ascension, but at the very point of death, in the oblation, the veil was rent. The way was manifested Christ's blood has opened up the way a new and living way the shadows never give us that we now have boldness to enter and this is what verses 19 to 23 are all about having therefore brethren boldness boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way 
which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. So that when his flesh was rent, the veil was rent, and we have a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Go right in. The true blood is shed now. Go right in. Let us go near. Let us enjoy our liberty. Let us go near with a true heart. We don't have to fear. We don't have to pretend. We can go in with a true heart and with a full assurance of faith. And our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. And we're washed with the true washing. So Christ's offering brings us into all of that. We have all that we need in the blood of Jesus Christ, congregation. Our standing before God is settled. Don't you know that? It is sure and steadfast in Christ. It's done. We are standing on the finished work. Not standing on the flesh. Not standing in the progress of sanctification going on in us. However, that may be progressing. We're standing on redemption ground. We're standing on the cross work of Jesus Christ for our acceptance before God. That's the foundation. That's our rest. John Newton wrote, Bowed down beneath a load of sin by Satan sorely pressed, by war without and fears within, I come to thee for rest. Be thou my shield and hiding place that sheltered near thy side. I may my fierce accuser face and tell him thou hast died. Christ is dead. Tell your accuser that. Christ is dead. What though the accuser roar of ills that I have done, I know them well and thousands more. Jehovah findeth none because of the blood of Jesus Christ. What a marvelous salvation we have. It should thrill us. It ought to fill us with praise. It ought to encourage us in the service of God. Don't, don't let the devil drag you to despair. Don't listen to the dark thoughts of hell in your mind. Look at Christ crucified for you. In him you trust and believe. And in him you have acceptance. He, he's dealt with the sin issue. Bless and praise his holy name. So may the cross always overwhelm us. Let us pray.